0: To me it's really an American story and it's an American question. What are the stories we tell and what are the stories we don't and why don't we tell those stories?
1: That's a good soundbite.
2: Welcome to We Can't Print This.
1: Yep, it's a podcast that tells you the story you don't know behind the story that you do.
2: Ooh, my name is Eden Don, And I'm Fiona McCann. Every week we interview a writer of some kind or another about the stories behind their stories.
1: Correct. And this week, we welcome award-winning journalist Rebecca Claren, who has been writing about the American West for more than 20 years. Her publications ranging from Mother Jones to Salon to The Nation to High Country News. She's also the author of the beautiful novel Kickdown. And her new book, The Cost of Free Land, Jews, Lakota and an American Inheritance, came out this week from Viking Penguin. And it's a beautiful book. Congrats, Becca. Yeah, yay, Becca. So what's interesting to me is that one of the things we talk about this interview, and you're all going to hear all about it, is how family lore is passed down generation to generation. And one of the things Becca does is not only... Go spelunking in her Yeah,
2: to find out what the actual truth is behind family yes, lore. She
1: fact checks it. Yeah, which
2: none of us ever do.
1: Which is terrifying when I think about it now. I'm sure I'm sure my parents are quaking in their boots. <laughs> fact checking family lore, Eden. hmm In your family. <laughs> is there any There's the, story? Yeah. Perchance.
2: There are so many ridiculous things that I have heard over the years, as we all have with family lore, right? And but the one that I that has kicked around for forever, which literally doesn't even make sense to me, Fiona, is somehow the story that I am Betty Davis's great granddaughter. I fully, <laughs> I fully
1: believe it <laughs> because I have sense. big eyes.
2: This is a big eye conspiracy. Yeah, but
1: big eyes—you've a be- you're totally Betty Davis's.
2: So it doesn't make any sense, but how the, the bits that I have heard over the years come together is that my great grandfather was plumber to the stars. Oh my God. I love that for him. I know. I know. It's a very good title. So down in Southern California, um, he was Plumber to the Stars. I know he was Bing Crosby's plumber. And at some point we got this beautiful painting of Bing Crosby's horse, like inherited to him <laughs> that we still, I think my dad still has it. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful painting. But my great grandfather was Plumber to the Stars. And I think Betty Davis is Plumber. And oh
1: yeah. We all know what that means.
2: <laughs> oh my God. It's so ridiculous. And then my grandfather my my grandfather, Don, who I'm named after, is um he knows that his mother is not his biological mother. We know that to be true. That part is actually family fact. Fact checked. Yes, that his biological mother is not his mother. But, but we don't know who his biological mother is. And somewhere there's like a picture of Betty Davis holding my grandpa as a baby on like Christmas morning. And like, like that sparks some things. Like why is Betty Davis at their house on Christmas morning holding... Who freaking knows? Who and frick- why does Eden look like Betty Davis? It makes zero sense though because like wouldn't we know wouldn't somebody have noticed Betty Davis pregnant for 9 months?
1: No, do you know how they covered up those things back in the day? People were Constantly That's true. That generation had a lot
2: of secret babies. That generation was getting it on and hiding babies. We do know that. But for the record, please, Betty Davis' family, do not sue me. I do not think it to be true. and It is one of these wild things that has gotten out of hand. And I do think somebody maybe from our family, even at some point, tried to reach out to them. And they were just like, no, you crazy folks, go away. Yeah,
1: they tried to shut it down because they know you're coming after that estate. But I'm saying to Betty Davis' folks, as I live and breathe, there is a descendant of Betty Davis I sitting right in front of me. Think so, but I can do that. What a dump. <laughs> clearly, Betty, well, my family history sounds so boring now.
2: What? T- no, everyone from Ireland has like the best stories of family history always.
1: Well, clearly, they were all a bunch of rascals. And most of the stories that come down involve Irish republicanism. Very heavily on my mother's side. Mm -hmm. A lot of shenanigans over there back when, um, as we were, as was handed down to us, it was known as the good IRA and not the bad one.
2: Right. I'm going to trust you on that. Down
1: there because that's clearly up for debate. Mm -hmm. But anyway, there are a lot of stories about my grandfather's. He grew up in Belfast, which was sort of, you know, where there was a lot going on and he grew up catholic and i believe that his father my great-grandfather was a tailor to the stars no not to the stars
0: to don't the revolutionaries be don't
2: be jealous of my plumber to the stars he family history he was a history. tailor to the revolutionaries so he would have
1: all of these dissenters meet in his tailor shop and and i think that part's true it's even appeared in a book so that's probably already been fact-checked fact uh, what i is kind of impossible to fact-check i suppose is the fact that what, what we were told was that my grandfather's family received a visit from a policeman um, that, while well, he was a young lad in Belfast, uh, knocking the door telling them just to let you know your house is going to be burnt and you'll be burnt out of it, so you better find somewhere else to go, which is a thing that happened. And the police would tell you that this terrible crime is going to happen. They knew all about it. And too bad for you because you're a bunch of Catholics and away you go. So as lore has it, my grandfather who was somewhere ranging between like 11 and 17 at the time. I'm not sure where. It's he. It's exactly, a wide range, wide a, range. Yes, a wide range. Um, uh, he came down to Dublin to sort of find a place for them to live and spent the first night in the Phoenix Park, alone and under the stars. That's what, or maybe he wasn't even alone. I can't quite remember that bit. But as Laura would have it, he spent the first night. It almost sounds kind of romantic Yeah, to it me, does
2: sound romantic a little bit.
1: sometimes I'm like... He was definitely rained on, obviously, and he'd just been told his house was his family was going to be burnt out. So, you know, maybe not a romantic story, but uh, that was part of our family, lore, and we absolutely grew up with it. Um, And I never really got to ask him about it because by the time I came along, he had no teeth. So he was hard to understand, although he was still a very talkative gentleman, but he also liked to talk to me in Irish in a very strong Belfast accent. So that made communication a little bit
2: complicated. Yeah. All right. With that, let's get on to Re- Rebecca. Rebecca talking about
0: <laughs> her family lore. Her
1: family lore and secret babies. Welcome, Rebecca Claren.
0: It is so, so nice to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey,
2: girl.
1: Hey. I just also, before we get stuck into the cost of Freeland, I want to give a <sighs> shout out to your last book. Oh. I loved
0: it. oh, thank you, Fiona. I think you're one of 17 people not related to me who read it, but I really appreciate that.
1: It's really, really good. And would I you just like to name it? Kickdown. It's an expression from like from the oil stuff, isn't it? I can never. Yeah, it's an
0: actual oil and gas industry term for when basically when the drillers lose control and everything goes wrong, and which great. is not like a petroleum engineering definition of that term but it is mine and uh, the book is about two sisters in Colorado who are trying to hold on to their family's land in the midst of an oil and gas boom and it's about feelings because it's a novel and especially the feelings of what happens when we lose control of ourselves and the people we love and our land so okay that's why I named it that
1: kind of a neat segue into this new book which is very very different and out
0: this week we
2: should mention mm-hmm.
1: oh it is it is out it fact, is out this today, week
2: october it today? 3rd oh october 3rd yeah
0: october 3rd
2: okay yes
0: tell us a little bit about the new book so the new book some people have said and i would agree is really a book i've been working on my entire career i've been a reporter writing about the American West for basically my whole adult life, and trying to bring nuance and understanding to our fixed ideas about this region. And you can't write about the West without writing about Native Nations. And so over the course of my time as a reporter, I have had the honor of visiting Native communities. But it took me a really long time, and kind of an embarrassingly long time, I would say, to realize that all these years I had been pointing fingers at the federal government for their policies, their land policies, their water policies, their Indian policies that that had have a lasting legacy of harm.
1: A fair, we should
2: point fingers there. Yes, of yeah. course. There's and a I, lot of fingers to be pointed.
0: There are a lot more than we have yeah. on our hands, but I had not realized that I had benefited. I had not seen the ways that I had personally benefited from policies that had harmed Native Americans because my family were homesteaders on the South Dakota prairie. They were Jewish people who had escaped terrible oppression in Russia. My great-great-grandfather was beaten to an inch of his life in a pogrom
1: and was brain damaged from Probably
0: it. had traumatic brain injury his whole life. The rest of his life, he was very erratic. And his behavior was very problematic in many ways.
2: And, and I remember reading that all of his ribs were broken. I was just even thinking about his lungs. Just like the, yes. the, the constant chronic pain that must have
0: come from that. He had asthma the rest of his life. And they when the Russian soldiers or peasants, whoever it was, burned his father's house or maybe his uncle's house, hard to know to the ground he had all that smoke inhalation so there's a legacy of the oppression that they felt in Russia that they carried with them to America and they got here and they got free land they got in on this free land the federal government had on offer on the south dakota prairie and growing up all i knew was that i had these incredible stories that were told to me about their tenacity and guts and the way they always looked amazing in photographs. And like, I have they, do. Pictures, they really do. Like, how did they keep their dresses so white? I on don't know the, the
1: prairie. And then they, their house is like, an it's a sod house made of
0: dirt yeah. and they're standing in dirt. front of it in perfectly white dresses. And, and I have photos of my uncle Louie standing on the top of a horse. Like I just had so was so captivated always by these stories of them. But I didn't ever make the connection until such a late period in my life to say, oh, but I benefited at great harm and cost to the Lakota people because, of course, the land that the federal government gave to my family was taken from the Lakota nation. The feds had signed several treaties reserving that land for the Lakota And then when California became a state and had this raft of natural resources and there was interest in building a transcontinental, it's not transcontinental, it's transnational railroad line connecting California to the East Coast. the Railroad companies, which at the time were the largest corporations Mm -hmm, in America, mm -hmm. so a lot hasn't changed in the way that politics is often beholden to to big business. They recognize that just that cross-national freight of bringing stuff from California to the east coast could not support the cost of building that line and keeping it going and so they wanted settlers on the prairie and all sorts of little towns along the railroad line who would support just by being there and by needing things brought to them of course the need for this long railroad line and so they took they got all the native people and they had you know it wasn't It was not as neat as this sentence, but they took Native people and put them in a reservation and much, much, much smaller slice of land than they had initially agreed on. Mm -hmm. And that is a very short story of how Lakota land became my family and a group of other Jewish families' land on the South Dakota prairie in a place that even today, where no Jews have lived for quite a while, locals still call this area Jew flats.
2: Wow. The thing I really loved about your book, you did such a wonderful job of threading this needle of you can admit benefiting from systemic inequities and wrong and also have had an incredibly hard life and have had things that were wronged against you. Like the anti-Semitism that your family face between literally having their homes burned and nearly being beaten to death is so wrong and so bad. And they benefited from systems of harm against other people. And I think for some reason, that discussion seems like a newer thing, that people are unwilling to
0: look at those layers of that. Thank you. It was really important to me to sort of start to peel back what is the story behind the story of the American history we've been told. I mean, even today, a source of mine who is a professor at Sitting Bull College on the Standing Rock Reservation His teenage son has a textbook that is used in his classroom that describes Wounded Knee, which is so widely acknowledged as a horrible massacre massacre, where the federal government just opened its guns, Hotchkiss guns, on unarmed women and children. And it's referred to as a battle in the pages of this history book. I mean, that's just like the tip of the iceberg of the kind of lack of truth telling that I encountered in this project. I I began to see that if you put the history of Jewish Americans or immigrant Americans and you put it side by side with the story of Native Americans, only then do you see the depth of the injustice of federal policy. You see the way the feds are extending opportunity to my family, not only with free land, but with loans and other opportunities at the same time that they're not only not extending those freedoms and opportunities to Native Americans, they're withholding them. If you just tell these stories in silos, these histories in silos, like a Jewish American history book or a Native American history, you miss something.
1: I think that's what's interesting to me as well, because we we have grown up with these silos, right? And these binaries, like Jewish people were oppressed, you know, Irish people were oppressed, therefore can't be also the oppressors. Well,
2: guess what? Guess what? (laughs) (laughs) Human
1: beings are (laughs) multi-talented. That's right. And so when we tell these stories in silos or in their sort of separate lanes, we're not telling the full story.
0: I was really influenced in this project by this Indigenous judge. Her name is Abby Abinanti. She's the Chief Justice of the Yurok Nation in Northern California. She was also a Superior Court Justice for the whole state of California in the Bay Area. And... I got to write a profile about her for the nation five years ago and spent a bunch of time in her company. And this was before this was even really a book. It was just an idea. And early on, she said to me, listen, if you're going to look at this and you're going to grapple and start, you should grapple with what do you do about this history today? And she said, but you should study the Jews. Her perspective is justice works best in a cultural context. And, it means more. And so what do the Jews say about how to repair?
1: And what do the Jews say about how to repair?
2: Yes, the Hev, the Hevrut, I'm sure I'm butchering the the, you know, pronunciation, but Havruta. I remember writing that down when you were and I was like this is so fascinating to me.
0: Havruta is an ancient Jewish practice of study, which means simply it's just studying in pairs. And my rabbi Benjamin Barnett here in town he really cares about social justice. My whole congregation does. And he, right away when I approached him about like, would you help me study ancient Jewish texts? I don't know anything about how to do this. He was on board. What do the Jews say? They say so many things. And um, <laughs> and I we did more studying than I fit into the book. But I chose to hold up a handful of Jewish teachings as guideposts for myself. One is this idea that's written about in Deuteronomy that pre-Israelites, when there was a murder in the middle of the road and you couldn't figure out who had committed the murder, there was this sense that you couldn't just leave that body, that sin pollutes everyone around it, that a murder is bad for everyone in the community. And so if you could not figure out who could take responsibility? It became a collective responsibility. And literally, oh I love the this. people in the two different towns or the nearest towns would measure their distance from the dead body and whoever whatever town was closest or community, I don't know that they had towns exactly, but whatever community was closest to the dead body, they took responsibility. And Rabbi Toba Spitzer, who wrote a sermon about this where she takes this and she says, we all in America have to measure our own distance from the foundational sins in this country of enslaving people and stealing native land. 25% of people living in America today, according to sociologists and other historians are descendants from homesteaders and academics show that if you can pay to go to college, if you have a home that you own and you're a descendant of homesteaders, if you have a second home, your intergenerational wealth that affords you that ability is probably because your family got free land that was taken from native people wow another that you can edit out <laughs> if you want to but another story is um that I love is there's a teaching in the Talmud two rabbis are having this discussion in the Talmud and one says if you find out that a Foundational beam of a house or even a palace was stolen. What do you do about it? And one rabbi says, "Oh, well, you have to take down, you have to dismantle the entire palace so you can give back that beam." And another rabbi, who's known as being far more pragmatic, says, "No, you don't have to do that. But you have to, you have to find the people who the beam was stolen from, and you have to pay them for it." Mm-hmm. And Sharon Brous, who's a rabbi at the Ecar Congregation down in Los Angeles, and is a really amazing person she she has a whole sermon that she wrote about this where she says we are living today in America on a stolen beam. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important in my opinion that we all begin to question what is my piece of the stolen beam? What is my distance from that originals those original sins of America? And how do I start to pay attention in a new way? The last Jewish teaching that I talk about in the book, there is this very famous Jewish philosopher and He lays out these six steps towards repentance. The first step is just stop doing the harm. And I argue in the book, I make it very clear, we haven't stopped doing the harm in federal policy towards Native nations, the racism in this country towards Native people. The harm is ongoing.
1: And even... Yeah, we haven't taken the basic first step.
0: My sense of time and what is past and what is now and what is in the future has completely changed through working on this project. When I'm writing this book and you realize, oh, Wounded Knee happened to just the grandparent of Doug Whitebull who is an elder who lives on Standing Rock who's a major part of this project. Like that's so close. He heard about Wounded Knee, not in a textbook. That's his his grandfather survived Wounded Knee and is telling him those stories as a child. My Aunt Etta is 90 years old. She's still incredibly alive. And her, it's her grandfather who survives that pogrom in Russia and sat her on her, his knee when she was a child and said, see this scar on my nose. I got that from wood falling on my nose during this pogrom. That's not something that like is so far away. It's direct. That's living. That's living yeah. in it me. It is important
2: to have those. Uh, the Harriet Tubman was still alive when Ronald Reagan was born, and Ronald Reagan was the president when I was born. So, like, that's a single person right. between. You know what I mean? That's one lifespan between that. And when I thought of that, I'm like, that's just not that long ago. That's just not that. So the idea of being over these things is ridiculous. Well, and the legacy, I think, is the important
1: part of it all. It You know, regardless of who's left to tell the story, there's impacts from a historical moment that can last generationally and generationally and sort of never go away
2: in some ways. Fiona, I have to know because I don't usually stop to ask questions to my co-host rather than the author, but you not growing up in the American West, I'm curious how this book hit you? Because I don't know what level of like American history you learned growing up.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, culturally, we all grew up with American Westerns, you know, cowboys and Indians. I'm sure that was a game that my cousins played, but I don't think we had a sense necessarily that one was bad and one was good in that circumstance. That was just a construct. I didn't know about a lot of those battles. And we had a very different sense on the one hand Irish people felt some sense of identification with Native Americans, in part because they helped us when we were down. And that was a really big part of our story, that during the famine, um, Native nations raised a lot of money to send to Irish people. And interestingly, during COVID, when some of those same Native nations were particularly affected, Mm -hmm. Irish people sent back money and, all, and they had this big co-fund me, and every line was, we remember, we remember, we remember. It was like... Mm-hmm. So there has been... And Irish people and Native people have often made a connection about how do you save a language, because that's also been a part of our shared history. But there's so much that I don't even understand about the impact then that Irish people had when they joined the American story, and I think that's really That's what interesting. I'm talking about,
2: the intersectionality of all of that, right? Yeah. The, the levels of oppression and that it, it, it's just... There's not an easy answer or we would have solved it by now. And that's why I, when you were like, I spent years meeting with my rabbi to look at solutions. And I do, th- and like the greatest minds have, you know, we know that stopping harm is step yeah, one. That's, I
1: mean, that feels like an easy solution. I think it was also interesting to me because at one point you talk about that massacre and there was an Irish man involved. Am I right? And that really hit me because- He
0: was he, an Irish immigrant who was a soldier. Yeah. in And who was up, shooting down.
1: Shooting down women and children. Yeah. And so I think that's also an interesting part of the story, how the oppressed becomes oppressor.
0: I think it's really important. It has been very important to me. My instincts when I was in the midst of research was to feel very critical of my ancestors, to feel really mad at why weren't they doing anything? Why, why as they come and they're on the prairie, are they not paying attention to the fact that their Lakota neighbors are being oppressed in such a way. And it was Judge Abby who really helped me have a lot of compassion to look at this history and look at the history. And I think it helps to have compassion as we and we think about all of this, For have compassion for those who came before us and maybe their failure to do anything about it, even to stop doing the harm. What she said to me is, listen, if you're fleeing for your life, you're not going to stop along the road and have like a quick restorative justice conversation. <laughs> you know, You know she's like... Quick combo. Right? She's like, if you're an immigrant, you're going to do what it takes to survive.
2: And protect your family. And protect and, your family.
0: Yeah. And she said it really takes a couple generations. You, as the third generation in this country, you didn't grow up with the trauma that was handed down in the same way as like your mother or her mother. People who experienced such incredible oppression and so that's why it's it's appropriate that it's now that it's your work to start to think about these issues that it's our work now in america in a way that maybe our our ancestors couldn't maybe that irish man who was there at wounded knee you know what was he fleeing from
1: i think you treated your ancestors with empathy and in a way there's that point where you talk about you know the wandering and like Like, in some ways, you can see how this project spoke so directly to the issues that affected the Jewish community. And I think that sometimes that felt almost deliberate on the part of the more powerful people in the nation, where they figured out how to divide and conquer, and they figured out, you know, if we give you that thing that you've been craving, land, the end of exile, you know, a leg up in society, all of these things, then you can join us in the project of oppressing other people.
0: I think it's important to clarify that Jewish homesteaders were an incredibly small, small minority of homesteaders in general. And I tried to even figure out, well, what percentage of homesteaders were even immigrants? Maybe there were 30,000, 50,000 at one point. There was this incredible newspaper put out in the early 20th century called The Yiddish Farmer that was written in Yiddish, and it had tips for how to become a farmer, and Wow. Yeah. Like, what do you do with your chickens? How do you plow a field? All this incredible. I mean, what? They had 12,000 subscribers at one point. Um, more successful than most media
1: today. Exactly.
0: I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Sad and true. So, yeah. But it wasn't like it was just Jew. I think, I guess I'm doing that thing that Jews often do, which is, oh God, don't put too much of a spotlight on us. In this moment, I see I'm doing that. Like, I feel a little protective of the Jews because I want to make it clear that they were small small. they were small they were there and it's important to talk about them Laura Ingalls
2: Wilder's families were like they were the homesteaders
1: and she comes up in the book as well which I kind of loved I also was thinking of what we were just discussing about immigrants and the traditions and things that they brought and there was a really interesting um, moment where one of was it Ruth or maybe who got her period I wondered if you wanted to tell that story
0: I would love to so there's this story that several of my cousins told me they're older than me they're almost like aunties but they told me the story that had been handed down to them of our grandmother or my great-grandmother their grandmother she's on horseback and she's running she's riding as fast as she can to home because she thinks she's dying she hurt her stomach is hurting like it's never hurt before she's bleeding between her legs blood is dripping down her legs and she gets to her mother and who knows if it was a sod house at that point or a frame house but it's not much and she gets off the horse and she says mom i think i'm dying at which point my great-great-grandmother fega etka slaps her daughter and says mazel tov may you have many children and (laughs) this slaps her (laughs) and i did some research and and that was so shocking to me and i did a bunch of research and learned this was actually super common in europe
2: the slap the slap, the slap. it's not enough thing. you have mind numbing cramps you have to get slapped and on top of it and you're bleeding and you think
0: you're going to die and then it, your mom smacks you across the face it was this like it was akin to like break a leg in showbiz it was like <laughs> we're going to slap you as like a hedge against not ever having children. Basically, also there's thoughts that maybe it was a a sort of it was getting at the shame associated with fertility so, and like sort of like wise up. Don't don't make any mistakes here with those legs open, you know. Whoa. And I write in the book about how I was very grateful that my great-grandmother Ruth never slapped her daughters. That slap did not come down to me. Last weekend, I was at a family reunion. There were 90 Seneca descendants in attendance of this. Wow, 90. And I was asked to read from the book. Probably the most nerve-wracking reading I will do, I will say. And um, my cousin stood up and said, I was slapped. Her great-grandmother was my great-grandmother's sister. And apparently, she must have slapped her daughter, who slapped her daughter, who slapped both of her daughters, who are my third cousins, who, just a side note, in my family, third cousins, I feel very close to them. Like <laughs> My kids were playing with their fourth cousins, and everyone is like, everyone counts, everyone's involved. It's this really sp- very special family, I will say.
1: But the one side continued to slap and one side didn't.
0: Yes, and I That's didn't so know when I finished the book and filed the book, I have a line in there that said, You know the the slap stopped, but it didn't. I mean, my cousins are not slapping their kids, but you know what I mean. And and it was it's been really an amazing. It's so hard to write about your family. It is so fraught, and I would not recommend it to anyone. (laughs) But I will say, these, a few of these kinds of moments have happened, where I feel so grateful that I got the chance to to write this family history for so many reasons but in the kind of healing that I I hope I'm right in saying it can foster and that my cousin and I were just texting this morning and she said that has always felt so upsetting that I was slapped and I didn't understand it and it really helps to understand the roots of where that came from. Wow! What a gift! Look at that. That's amazing. It's amazing. It makes me want to cry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of, it 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 takes away any sense that she herself had done something wrong, or you know, anything like that, and and grounds it in just this deep, hundreds of years old history. Um, It's incredible.
2: Yeah. Let's talk more about the writing about your family and interviewing your family because I really loved the mental picture of you going out to interview your great aunt with her perfect pink lipstick.
0: My Aunt Etta is my grandmother's younger sister. She is so adorable, and she's, you know, always got a matching blue outfit and perfectly coiffed white hair, and she looks maybe fragile, and she is not. She is a total, formidable, stubborn, amazing person who has really shepherded our family history in the way that her own mother did. So in her home in Minneapolis, in an area that is known as St. Jewish Park, she's lived in the same house for over 50 years. And there are six generations of Senecan descendants blasting every surface area of the walls. And in closets where some people would store food or coats, she has boxes and boxes of like, ancient letters and photographs and deeds to our homesteads and oh, we
2: all need an aunt etta honestly I mean, it's I, like a family one, museum one person in the family seems to take that on it, 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 and now i'm concerned because not it. there's not anyone like i feel like i'm the end of that road
0: i think you I should be glad it. about that i have recognized that i am like i'm like oh i am that way like the line between the, this I write this in the book, but the line between pack rat and historian is a very thin line. <laughs> yes,
2: and, uh, I like I like the idea of calling it a historian. That's great. <laughs> I'm gonna say that now when I have Not all a of hoarder. My, I'm I a have, historian. I have programs from plays from high school too, and I'll be, I'm just a historian. And you're
0: a historian. I mean, my Aunt Etta was so generous with me. She let me go spelunking in her closets and like unearth layers, strata of family genealogy and history. There's a lot of family secrets that I learned. Some of them I didn't tell in this book because they weren't really relevant to the story I was telling. But some, feel free to drop them you now.
2: <laughs> I'm telling you, the greatest generation should be renamed the greatest generation of secret keeping because that that is where this all the secret babies keep coming out. Oh, that's where the secret. F- I could do a whole episode on the secret babies. We,
1: yeah, there my family.
2: Yeah, there are some in my distant family too. With the the it's. Non stop and they keep coming out because of Ancestry.com. And twenty three and me we'd like
0: there's totally amazing things like that we that we've learned and we're like, did they know? We'll never know. Did they know?" know? But some of the secrets, you know, to me they're not that different from what so many families when you really pull back some layers on what's really underneath the stories we tell. You know, things like domestic violence and things like illegal activity. My my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother's siblings, they became bootleggers during Prohibition. At one point, I've been told, who knows if this is really true, but someone told me in my family that my family was one of the richest families in St. Paul, Minnesota at a certain point during that bootlegging activity. My family, like, My great-uncle Jack gave my grandmother a pony when she was six. She had her own pony.
2: What? That's every six-year-old's dream.
0: I have a photograph (laughs) of it. I had always understood prohibition to be a law passed in large part because poor women were having their husbands go out and drink down their checks, and they were getting battered, and we had to put a stop to that in America. When, in fact... The real political muscle I have learned was this organization called the Anti-Saloon League. And they were a bunch of Protestant men who were freaked out about all the new immigrants coming into America, particularly Jewish and Irish and Italian immigrants who were Catholic and who had cultures of using wine ceremonially. And there was, there's, you know, old articles I found that lay this out that were like, if we can get rid of saloons and drinking in America, not just drinking, because frankly, there was a lot of way to still get booze, but it was get rid of saloons and the liquor industry, then all those immigrants, particularly Jewish and Irish and Italians that are working in those industries will go back to where they came from, take away their jobs and they'll go home. Of course, it doesn't work. No one leaves. They're not going to go back. But they, and so they figured out how to stick it to the man. I actually find this piece of my family history something not to be ashamed of, but to be kind of proud of that my family became bootleggers and they figured out how to make it despite, you know, and what we now acknowledge was a bad law. Yeah. But for my Aunt Etta, that was what the Yiddish word is shanda, which means a great shame. And that
1: was the piece that she was most ashamed of so
0: ashamed the bootlegging of the bootlegging oh
2: interesting oh man I, that's the part that we're all like yeah
0: good go team. good restos. right like how could I not write about that the stories of those experiences like my uncle Louie was pushed down an elevator shaft and broke his back by mobsters like there's so Whoa. many amazing stories I write about in this book about the illegal bootlegging activity there was this wasn't my family but there was a Canadian family who were Jewish that were doing so much bootlegging that their boat that they would go across Lake Erie to Canada, to the United States was called the Mazel Tov. Like you (laughs) cannot make that stuff up. Right. That
2: is very good. It's so amazing. And yet,
0: I mean, and so interesting that I was a little concerned when I started working on this book that my family would be offended or protective that I was trying to write this entangled history. no, To a person, everyone is so proud. At least what they've told me is how proud they are and how important this work feels to be telling this history about Native America.
1: One thing I also did learn from your book is that you really have to master the pivot to survive. (laughs) I just felt like, especially looking at some of your ancestors who were like, okay, we're going to be farmers now. Okay, now we're going to be saloon owners oh, really? No saloons? Pivot. <laughs> I was like, Keep whoa. Going. It's, I
0: love that you name that because it makes me think of my Aunt Etta, who has said to me so many times, you have to adapt. You have to adapt. How do we get through life without adapting? Adapt and pivot. And uh, I think that's – she learned that from her family, clearly.
1: Yeah. I'm really – I'm in some ways I kind of want to put this book into the hands of literally everybody who lives in America and say – Because I do think, I do want to bring it it. back to our. Do it, Fiona. (laughs) I shall. I I shall take those arms. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all of you who are listening, and and outside of America too, because I don't, there's so much of the story that's not just an American story, but I do think there's almost a responsibility to American citizens now to understand, like you say, what we have to, where is, what beam do we have to pay for? But it just feels like such an important reckoning with all of that.
0: Thank you. I will just put a plug in. There's a UK edition that will be out the same day as the Penguin Viking edition with footnote press. So if you are listening to this in Europe, you can probably find it in one of your own bookstores. Ooh.
1: Do you think the English could read it too? Yeah. (laughs) Do you think?
0: think. And you won't have to read the word colour and incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> right. <Thank God>. Glamour. <laughs> this book
1: was such an undertaking. What's your biggest takeaway from it, do you think?
0: Writing is hard. Oh, yeah. it doesn't get easier. It's also the best job in the world. My biggest takeaway is... Well, oh God, I have so many. I, I think I'll, I'm going to flip that question on its head. And what I love is when people have read the book already and told me that they, you know, who aren't Jewish at all. And they say, I read this book and it made me start to question my own family history in America. And I would I would love it if that's how this book lands for everyone. I told a very specific story but to me, it's really an American story. And it's an American question. What are the stories we tell? And what are the stories we don't? And why don't we tell those stories? That's a good soundbite.
2: That's a good soundbite.
1: <laughs> I think that's we gotta a good... tell you, talk about synthesizing. That's... Boom. That's a mic drop.
2: All right. We are.
1: Okay. Yeah well thank you again to rebecca Claren for joining us today um f- just so all of you know her website is rebecca com. that's two r's and Claren, and you can also find her on instagram at at r and just so you know as well she's also doing a ton of in-person and virtual events in october november and beyond and you'll find all that information on her website and that's it from we can print this today you can see more about this enf- episode Uh, On our website, wecanprintthis.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter and get bi-weekly culture picks, industry news, and more. And follow us
2: So on Instagram at this. Follow us. Um, Also a small reminder that we are not backed by anyone. We are two independent journalists who interview other writers because we love it and writing. But you can support our work and the podcast by becoming a monthly supporter on Patreon. Thank you to our producer Miranda Schaefer and to Dave Depper for our intro music. This podcast was recorded at the Writer's Block in Portland. And a big thank you to our third office mate, Rachel Ritchie, for the time when she was my actual boss and stole my shoes at a company party and wouldn't give them back to me for two hours. (laughs) That sounds like Rachel. Mm -hmm. Because she was wearing them, to be clear. She put them on and wouldn't give me any shoes. It's
1: hard to take them back from Rachel. Well, if you are a writer with a great behind the story story or a few behind the story stories, please write to us at wecanprintthis at gmail.com.